well. Well. I'll put it up here. <clears throat> Probably the most significant thing that Father said about me is I'm, I'm married and have six children and 19 grandchildren. Uh, all the rest, my father used to say when we were growing up in New York, New Jersey, he'd say that 50 cents will get you on the subway. So the, the really significant thing is how we're trying to live our lives and the relationships we have and things like that. Uh, <clears throat> I'm going to speak about you know, a theme from this book, A Church in Crisis Pathways Forward, because uh, we're really living in pretty challenging times. Uh, what's going on in our culture, you know, you kind of feel it, this growing hostility to Christ and the church, and even within the church, there's confusion and division. So I'd like to uh, start off by reading something that Archbishop Gomez, who's the current president of the American Bishops' Conference, uh, described what we're facing. He gave a, a talk to a, a conference in Madrid. That's a pretty bright light, isn't it? <laughs> I, I guess there's nothing we can do about it. And anyway, maybe if there's something that can be done about it, that'd be great. If not, we'll just kind of try to, try to see who's, oh yeah, that's great, yeah, super. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so Archbishop Gomez gave a talk to a conference in Madrid, and they wanted some interpretation about what's going on in the United States concerning woke culture. And this is what uh, Archbishop Gomez said. He's the Archbishop of Los Angeles. He said, an elite leadership class has risen in our countries that has little interest in religion and no real attachments to the nations they live in or its local traditions or cultures. This group, which is in charge in corporations, governments, universities, the media, and in the cultural and professional establishments, wants to establish what we might call a global civilization. In fact, as they see it, religion, especially Christianity, only gets in the way of the society they hope to build. So this is a pretty uh, strong statement from a pretty moderate bishop who doesn't normally say things like this, but he says we're really dealing with a a very serious situation with an elite leadership class that really isn't grounded anymore in the Judeo-Christian tradition and is really after something very different. While acknowledging the importance of Catholic social teaching and the need to continue to correct injustices, whether racial or economic, Archbishop Gomez warned that these movements have now become elevated into virtual religions, attempting to build a perfect society without God and without any realism about human nature. So this is what a solution is. He says, what's the answer to the situation we're facing? He says, my answer is simple. We need to proclaim Jesus Christ boldly, creatively, with charity and confidence, without fear. We should not be intimidated by these new religions of social justice and political identity. The gospel remains the most powerful force for social change that the world has ever seen. Of course, in the church, we've not always lived up to our beautiful principles or carried out the mission entrusted to us by Christ, but the world does not need a new secular religion to replace Christianity. 
It needs you and me to be better witnesses, better Christians. Let us begin by forgiving, loving, sacrificing for others, putting away spiritual poisons like resentment and envy. So uh, it's pretty amazing that, again, a, a moderate bishop who holds a high position right now would identify the situation with such seriousness. Now, even more so, uh, Pope Emeritus Benedict XVI, after he resigned as Pope, he wrote, uh, he collaborated with an author in writing a, a biography. And in that biography, he, he said something really striking. He said, 100 years ago, everybody would have considered it to be absurd to speak of a homosexual marriage. Today, one is being excommunicated by society if one opposes it. The same applies to abortion and to the creation of human beings in the laboratory. Modern society is in the middle of formulating an anti-Christian creed, and if one opposes it, one is being punished by society with excommunication. The fear of the spiritual power of the Antichrist is then only more than natural. This is pretty extraordinary to have somebody of the stature of Pope Benedict XVI actually saying what we're dealing with here is the spirit of the Antichrist. And he says it's only natural to fear what we sense is happening. But then he says, we really need to turn to prayer on the part of an entire diocese and of the universal church in order to resist it. Now, one of the things that we need to recognize is that the picture that scripture gives us about how things are gonna be just before the Lord returns is things aren't gonna be getting better and better. They're gonna be getting worse and worse, but don't, don't panic. Just when things couldn't get any worse, Jesus is gonna appear again and bring justice and peace to the entire creation. But the Catechism of the Catholic Church has some pretty clear teaching about the spirit of the Antichrist. But before we do that, uh, I wanna just say a few things about actually what scripture says about the end times. I'm not claiming we're in the end times. Honestly, we won't know whether we're in the end times or not until we see if Jesus comes or not. But there's some really significant things that scripture tells us to be on the alert for. Second Thessalonians chapter two, Paul says, don't be confused by purported prophecies that claim that Jesus has already returned and you've missed it. He says, Jesus will not return until two particular things happen. There's other things that Jesus himself identifies in Matthew's gospel, but these are two specific things that Paul mentions. He says, Jesus will not return and first of all, the great apostasy happens. Now what's an apostasy? It isn't something that pagans do, it's something that Christians do. It's the turning away from faith on the part of those who once had it. Now, there's no question about it, but we are living in a time of great apostasy. For several hundred years now, <coughs> seeds have been planted in the major institutions of our culture that now are blooming into really an apostasy. There's a very explicit rejection of the Ten Commandments, of God, of Jesus, on the part of the major organs of our culture. Every government agency is now in the hands of people who are 
absolutely dedicated to expanding abortion as much as they can, absolutely dedicated to elevating a, a vision of sexuality that totally departs from what God reveals the purpose of sexuality is, and also very dedicated to submerging religious freedom and freedom of conscience and forcing people to give allegiance to this worldview at the, the threat of being excommunicated by society. It may only be, uh, you know, kind of given a cold shoulder at the country club. Uh, it, it may not be admitted into certain universities because they know you're a Christian. It may not be promoted, getting promoted in a particular corporation because the corporation is requiring allegiance to this worldview. Uh, I know Catholics who are working for Fortune 500 companies right now who are hoping that the diversity police don't knock on their door and, and force them to start using pronouns that they, they can't in conscience use. So this is kind of, it's, it's creeping and it's coming. Uh, the major traditionally Christian and Catholic nations have tragically, radically turned away from the faith. You know, my grandparents immigrated from Ireland uh, my grandfather sold a cow once to open a little chapel in their little region of county cabin. And uh, one of the saddest, and, and Ireland for 800 years was under persecution, and they bravely kept the faith, and they sent missionaries out all over the world. In fact, there's still probably some Irish missionaries here in the south. A lot of them came south here. But over the last 40 or 50 years, 40 or 50 years of prosperity corrupted people in a way that 800 years of persecution didn't. And they really exchanged the truth for a lie. One of the saddest things was when Ireland finally legalized abortion, thousands and thousands of people came into the streets of Dublin celebrating that they now could be like the rest of Europe. They could be on the right side of history. Of course, what people are calling the right side of history is heading towards going over a cliff. I used to think that there were three nations in Europe that were bravely resisting the pressure to adopt this new worldview that doesn't have room for Christ in the church. When the European Union was talking about forming a constitution, there was debate about whether they should acknowledge the Christian roots of Europe, and they decided not to despite the appeals of the Pope and all kinds of things like that, they decided, nope, we're gonna, de we're gonna deny our past. We're not gonna give any room uh, to Christianity in the new situation that we're creating here in Europe. So I used to think that Ireland, Malta, and Poland were holding, holding out. And uh, Ireland's fallen. Malta is 90% Catholic, but only 10% or less people come to church anymore, and they've legalized abortion and the whole uh, divorce, and the whole kind of fabric is starting to unravel there too. Poland's holding out, but they're under tremendous threat by financial punishment by the European Union if they don't go along with the LGBTQ agenda and abortion and things like that. And the the party that's resisting that barely won re-election and. Money's flooding in from all over the world to try to destroy them and defeat them. So there's a real spiritual battle going on. So there's no question about it. We are seeing a great apostasy. We are seeing a great turning away from Christ on the part of those who traditionally bore his name. Whether it's the final apostasy or not, honestly, we won't know. 
until we see if Jesus returns. The second thing that Paul says we're going to see before the Lord returns is a certain removal of a restraint on evil. He says when the restrainer is removed, then we'll see lawlessness, then we'll see evil kind of unimpeded begin to do its work. And then it says that the Antichrist, this man of perdition, is going to use two means to deceive people. One is false signs and wonders, not real signs and wonders, not real godly miracles that lead people to faith and conversion, but maybe magic, maybe spectacular feats, maybe super personalities, maybe pulling off remarkable things in the world, whatever. But the second thing is very relevant, every deception available to lead those who are destined to perish to perish. Now, it's a pretty shocking phrase there, those who are destined to perish. Now, the Catholic Church teaches, rightly so, because Scripture teaches it, that God wills the whole human race to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. So what's this thing about people destined to perish? Nobody is created to perish. Everybody's created to be with God forever. But then if you read, continue to read 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, it says, those destined to perish because they refuse to open their hearts to the truth in order to be saved. So those who are destined to perish are those who choose to reject the light that God is giving, choose to re reject the gospel, choose to reject the mercy that God is offering to every human being. But then it goes on to say, and therefore a deep delusion is going to come upon them. So once you sin against the light and it becomes persistent and it becomes deep, it's very hard to come back from it. You can take a look at yourself, yourself in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Well, is the restrainer on evil removed? I would say that for many, many years now, restraints on all kinds of evil are being systematically removed from our culture, from our society. Uh, there's no question about it. Um, I mean, there's people in power right now that want to expand abortion as wide as possible. There's people in power right now that disdain the traditional Christian view of marriage and sexuality and uh, all kinds of evil is breaking out. Mental illness is growing, uh, suicide is growing. Uh, it, it's just not, a, not really good for human beings right now. So what does the Catechism of the Catholic Church say all about this? So that's what scripture says. Pope Benedict gave a warning about the Antichrist, but what does the Catechism say? Section 675 of the Catechism. It says, before Christ's second coming, the church must pass through a final trial that will shake the faith of many believers. The persecutions that accompanies her pilgrimage on earth will unveil the mystery of iniquity in the form of a religious deception offering men an apparent solution to their problems at the price of apostasy from the truth. The supreme religious deception is that of the Antichrist, a pseudo-messianism by which man glorifies himself in place of God and of his Messiah come in the flesh. That's what's happening right now. A large part of the human race is declaring their independence from God. You know, when that first happened, it didn't lead to good things, you know. 
the Lord said, it's all yours, just don't fruit from the tree of good and evil. And they did it, and um, everything that God said would happen, would happen. Death came into the world. Instead of being like gods, they became lower than what they were. Now, just, just at the moment when the world most needs to hear a clear message from the church, we're seeing confusion. We're seeing division. We're seeing cowardness. We're seeing lukewarmness. And that's why Archbishop Gomez's solution is we need to become better witnesses. We need to look to our own relationship with Christ because we need to prepare ourselves for persecution. Uh, it's right now what they call soft persecution, but we need to prepare ourselves to stand strong when there's pressure on us to deny Jesus. I think it's Matthew chapter five. Jesus says, you know, if they persecuted me, they're gonna persecute you. And there's all kinds of scripture passages that we didn't used to pay attention to because they didn't seem relevant at the time that are now becoming relevant. When we're living in a Christendom mentality where culture had been suffused by Christian values, uh, we, weren't, we weren't concerned about persecution, at least in our country. But now when things are changing, when Christendom is collapsing, when this new secular culture is growing up that's hostile to Christ and the church, we're gonna to have to think about what are we gonna do when we're challenged? What are we gonna do when the pressure's on us to deny Jesus? I think in Matthew chapter five, Jesus says, uh, when they bring you before kings and rulers, don't worry about it. Don't prepare in advance even what you're gonna say because at the moment that you need it, the Holy Spirit will tell you what to say. So that's pretty good. You know, the Lord doesn't want us to live in fear. He doesn't want us to live in anxiety. The world is just covered in fear and anxiety right now, but the Lord doesn't want us to live in fear and anxiety because he's the Lord. And there's nothing happening right now, either in our culture or in our church, that's not under his control. He's only permitting things to happen that he has a plan to bring good out of. So you might say, hey, what, 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 what good could come out of what's happening right now? Well, the, the sickness under the surface is coming out. The decisions that people have made to give themselves over to immorality, unbelief, and wickedness are, are becoming manifest. The fruits of it is starting to become very clear. And the Lord is permitting wickedness to ripen. He's hoping for repentance. He's hoping for conversion. But people are going to be given a chance. I think he's also concerned about purifying the church, that the church really needs to gather around Christ in a more definitive way. Catholics need to make decisions. A lot of times we have one foot in the church and one foot in the world, and, and that's not gonna be a viable stance. You know, it's like a, somebody standing on the dock with one foot in the dock and one foot in the boat. The boat's moving out, you know, gotta jump, or you gotta land in the water. So Jesus says, if you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. Now, I don't know, that sounds harsh to me, doesn't it? Doesn't it sound a little harsh? You know, uh, Dr. Peter Kreef, the uh, philosopher at Boston College, wrote a book called Jesus Shock. And he says, you know, if you're not shocked by what Jesus says, you're, you're not really paying attention. 
So I'm a little shocked by what Jesus said there. Like, if you deny me before people, uh, I'm going to deny you before my Father in heaven. Another gospel phrases it like, if you're ashamed of me before people, I'm going to be ashamed of you before my Father in heaven. Now, how could that possibly be just? How could that possibly be loving? Where, where's the compassion? Where's the mercy? Where's the understanding of human weakness? Well, here's the little insight I have into it. We've got to realize the gift that Jesus is. We, we've got to realize the price he's paid. We, we've got to realize what God the Father is doing for us in sending us his only son. We, we've got to realize what Jesus is doing for us in undergoing the torture, undergoing the humiliation, undergoing everything he underwent for our salvation. And we also got to realize that the Father has sent Jesus to bring us back to the Father's house, to bring us back to paradise. And the only way we can get back to the Father's house, the only way we can get back to paradise is to take a hold of Jesus and to hold on to the end. Jesus says, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. So it's not enough just to be in a Bible study for a couple group and then go for a couple of years and go on with your life. It's not enough to, uh, be active for a while. We need to set ourselves for the long haul. The Christian life isn't a sprint, it's a marathon. We gotta kind of gear ourselves for the, for the long haul. And we gotta hold on to Jesus and stay holding on to Jesus until the end because Jesus says, he who perseveres to the end will be saved. So if we, under pressure, deny Jesus, we're denying our pathway home to the Father. We're, we're denying the lifeline that the Father has given us. You know, there's that famous text in Romans chapter eight that nothing can separate us from the love of Christ. You know, throw everything in, throw the kitchen sink in, you know, persecution, life, death, you know, everything, throw it all in. Nothing can separate us from the love of Christ except us. Nothing out there can separate us from the love of Christ. Jesus says, he even says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body but rather be afraid of he who can kill soul and body in hell. How can Jesus say that? I mean, the underlying fear in the human race is the fear of death. In fact, Hebrews chapter two, it says the devil through the fear of death kept people enslaved their whole life long. So the devil uses our fear of dying, our fear of being diminished, our fear of not being loved, our fear of illness, our fear of sickness, our fear of rejection, our fear of broken relationships, our, our, our health fears, all those things, our financial fears. He uses all those fears to keep us locked up, to keep us locked in fear, locked in anxiety, self-focused. And Jesus came to defeat the devil and to free us not only from the fear of death, but from death. Now, Jesus says something else shocking. He says, uh, John 11, uh, I'm not as good as the Protestants on this. See the, <laughs> I think it's pretty much John 11, where, uh, where Jesus says, he who believes in me, even if he dies, will not die. So Jesus is talking about death on two levels there. He's, he's talking about even if you die, your biological death, you will not die because he has come to give us eternal life. Now, 
What's eternal life worth? Can't buy it, can't pay for it. You know, one of the lines of one of the Psalms says, what price can a man give for his own soul? You can't, you know, I mean, all these big tech billionaires, uh, they're, they'd give anything to extend their life. Somebody at Microsoft a couple of years ago, he said he thought in about five years, he'll be able to live forever because he'll be kind of able to download stuff from his brain into stuff and stuff like that. Well, that's not eternal life. That's prolonging life on this earth. And uh, life on this earth is shot through with suffering, with sickness, with, with disappointments, with frustrations. We don't necessarily want that to go on forever. We want to move on to something better. And that something better is eternal life. Uh, complete happiness, complete union, complete love. Uh, it's worth everything. So Jesus says, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, but be afraid rather of who can separate you from your lifeline, who can separate you from your savior, who can separate you from he who is the way, the truth, and the life. Now, just at the point where the church needs to speak clearly to the world, there's confusion in the church. I don't know how in tune you are with what's going on, but we've got problems. You know, just, uh, just a month or so ago, a very highly placed cardinal, Cardinal Hollerich, the Archbishop of Luxembourg, in an interview said he didn't believe in the church's teaching concerning homosexuality, and we need to update our teaching based on sociology and science. Now, if some crackpot off to the side had said that, you know, okay, people say stuff like that, but this is a highly placed cardinal. He's also president of the Commission of Bishops Conferences of Europe uh, that relates to the European Union. And he's been appointed by Pope Francis to lead this worldwide synodal process. I don't know if it's hit your little parish here or not where we're supposed to be consulted and part of a worldwide consultation. It's a little unclear what's supposed to be going on with it, but this Cardinal Hollerick is in charge of it. He's gonna be in charge of the synod of bishops that decides what the results of it all is. And then a couple of weeks after that, Cardinal Marx, who is one of the chief advisors to Pope Francis, uh, who was for many years the president of the German Bishops Conference, gave a long interview to Stern Magazine, which is like a very major magazine in Germany, saying that uh, he doesn't believe that homosexuality is wrong if it's loving. And then Bishop Batzing, who's the current president of the German Bishops Conference, said the most wicked thing of all. He said, hey, nobody can live sexual morality, so obviously we have to change our teaching. A total lie a total lie right from the mouth of Satan. Lots of people are living chaste lives. Lots of people are living chaste lives. And those who aren't, who are struggling, will be able to eventually. So, I never thought I'd live to see this. You know, I, I, I know there's a lobby in the church of people who would like to see the church's teaching change in the area of sexuality, but I never thought such highly placed church people would be so bold as to say it right out, and to say they don't believe it. I don't, I don't know how they're gonna back off from that. And of course, 
Cardinal Pell in Australia has said, where's the correction? Rome has to correct them. Where's the correction? And, and so far, no correction. So the bishops' conferences of Scandinavia, Poland, and Ukraine have written letters to the German bishops saying, you got to pull back from this. You're heading in the wrong direction. You're, you're not basing the renewal that you're hoping for in your church on the scripture, on tradition. You're basing it on the wisdom of the world. And every time that God's people got involved with the nations around them and accommodated to the nations around them, terrible things began to happen. So we need to pray for our leaders. But what can we do as individuals? We need to look to ourselves. We need to, we need to make sure that our relationship with the Lord is as solid as it possibly can be. We really may need to make some decisions about who we're going to follow, who we're going to trust, who we're going to listen to, who we're willing to sacrifice for. And I'm going to mention three areas that I feel like we need to pay attention to that will really put us in a good place. One is we need to recover our confidence in the inspiration and inerrancy of sacred scripture. When the uh, synods on the family were going on in Rome, the head of the Jesuit order was asked a question. He said, isn't the teaching of Jesus about marriage and sexuality really clear? And, and Father Sosa said, well, do we really know what Jesus said? Was anybody there with a tape recorder? <coughs> this is wicked. This is undermining people's confidence in the sacred writings. This is cutting people loose from a foundation. This is where the church derives its teaching from, scripture and tradition. This is what it says in the Catechism of the Catholic Church. I mean, if we don't clearly know what God's will is for salvation, we're still lost. You know, we're still in our sins. What does the Catechism, what does the Vatican II say about how we as Catholics should approach sacred scripture? There's a beautiful document called the Constitution on Sacred Revelation. I just want to pick out one aspect, section 11. And it says, everything asserted by the sacred authors should be considered to be asserted by the Holy Spirit and to teach firmly, faithfully, and without error those truths that God wished to consign to the sacred writings for the sake of our salvation. Jesus taught his disciples how to interpret the scripture. Jesus had faithful men and women who were able to, together, preserve for us a true account of what Jesus said and did. There are parts of sacred scripture that are hard to understand, but as Mark Twain said, it isn't those parts of scripture that are hard to understand that most disturb me, it's those parts of scripture that are so clear that most disturb me. There are so many clear assertions of sacred scripture containing, pertaining to our salvation that we're fools not to pay the most careful attention to them. So I'm gonna pick out two areas now where we need to be particularly clear 
about what God has revealed to us because they're very important issues right now in the church. One is in the area of marriage and sexuality. Why do I talk about that? Because this is the point of the spear that our culture is using to destroy us. If you could destroy the family, you could destroy the church. You could destroy human beings. If you can throw people into sexual chaos, you've cut them loose from sanity. This is where the culture is insisting us that we need to burn incense to the emperor. We need to accept falsehoods about sexuality, lies about sexuality. What does scripture say? God created a male and female to come together in marriage and open to life. That's it. That's the purpose of sexuality for a man and a woman to come together, become one flesh, one spirit, and open themselves to the creation of new life. That's, that's it. Every exercise of genital sexuality outside of that purpose is not part of God's plan and it hurts the people who engage in it. Whether it's pornography or masturbation or fornication or adultery or the active practice of homosexuality, it hurts the people who engage in it. It's not God's plan. That's why we need to struggle for chastity. But not only that, not only does it hurt the people who depart from God's plan in the area of of sexuality, but it endangers our salvation. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, Paul says, don't let any one deceive you. The immoral will not enter the kingdom of God. That sounds pretty clear, doesn't it? (laughs) What What could be clearer? The immoral will not enter the kingdom of God. And then Paul goes on to say, the fornicator, the adulterer, the person who engages in homosexual activity. And these days we have to say, we're not talking about temptation. We're not talking about inclination. We're not talking about tendencies. We're talking about acting on disordered desires, whatever kind they are. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about action. He goes on to talk about drunkards and robbers and thieves and idolaters and will not enter the kingdom of God. But then it says, and such were some of you, but you've been set free by the blood of Jesus Christ, the waters of baptism and the Holy Spirit. Galatians chapter five, Paul goes through a similar list, throws in a couple other junky stuff. And then he says, I warn you as I warned you before that those who do these things will not enter the kingdom of God. Wow. Ephesians chapter five, the impure person will not inherit the kingdom of God. And because of this, the wrath of God is breaking out against the disobedient. There's consequences. There's consequences from moving away from the purpose for which God created us. There's consequences. There's consequences in this life, but there's also eternal consequences. Revelations chapter 20 and 21. You know, when Jesus said, don't be afraid of those who can kill the body, here's something we need to be afraid of. It's called the second death. The first death is biological death. And for a Christian, all your suffering's over. 
all your happiness is about to really blossom. But the second death is eternal separation from God. And it talks about the lake of fire. Who's in the lake of fire? Honestly, I, I read this passage lots of times over the years. I never paid too much attention to who's in the lake of fire. And it's kind of surprising who's in the lake of fire. Well, murderers, we understand that, right? Yeah, murderers. And we're not talking about people who, you know, occasionally do something very wrong and repent. We're talking about people who die in their sins. We're talking about people who become their sin in a certain way. Cowards. Honestly, I wasn't expecting cowards to be in the lake of fire. And I think that relates to what we were just talking about, about denying Jesus, about saving yourself from trouble, but cutting yourself off from Jesus. Liars. Now, every now and then telling a lie isn't going to get you into a lake of fire. But if lying starts to become who you are, if you become a liar, if that's how you intend to get through life, by lying, and you don't repent, you're going to end up in the lake of fire. So anyway, this is why Jesus says something else shocking. He says, if your right eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. If your right foot causes you to sin, cut it off. Better to enter the kingdom lacking an eye or a hand or a foot than to go down into hell with an intact body. Now, this is a literary form called Jewish hyperbole. So don't, don't anybody think about cutting off your hand or foot or eye. But think very much about doing whatever it takes to get free of serious sin. Whatever it takes because it's killing you and it will kill you forever. If you need to go to a 12-step group, go to a 12-step group. If you need to get an accountability partner, get an accountability partner. If you need to get rid of your computer, get rid of your computer. If you need to stop drinking, stop drinking. If you need to start, stop hanging out with certain people and going to certain places that, that lead you into sin, stop. Basically, Jesus is saying, do whatever it takes to get free from serious sin. Now, Jesus is saying this stuff not because he wants to make us miserable, not because he wants to take away any happiness from us. It's because he wants us to experience true happiness. He wants to give us a peace that the world can't give us. He wants to give us a joy that the world can't give us from living in harmony with God's will. So this is an area we need to be very clear on because the world is going to insist that we not believe this anymore. The world is going to insist that we got to just throw it all over and anything goes. And, the, and entering into the chaos of anything goes is a recipe for misery. So we need to be really clear at what God tells us about human sexuality. The last area I'd like to talk about is also very important because there's a worse virus in the church today than COVID. COVID can kill an occasional body here and there. But this is the virus of universalism. This is the virus of presumption. 
This is the virus of only considering half of who God is. I think Romans chapter 11, it says, consider both the kindness and the severity of God. You might want to say, consider both the mercy and justice of God. Consider both the holiness and love of God. For the last 40 or 50 years, we've been drifting into only considering the kindness of God. And because of that, we've drifted into a lukewarm presumption that God is so merciful that everybody will be saved. Not true. So I'd like to talk about that a little bit. If I were to describe how many of our fellow Catholics look at the world today, I'd describe it like this. Broad and wide is the way that leads to heaven, and almost everybody's going that way. Narrow is the door that leads to hell, difficult the road, and hardly anybody's going that way. Now, what's wrong with this picture? Oh good, some brave witnesses to the truth. Some good Bible-believing Catholics here. What does Jesus say in Matthew chapter 7, verses 13 and 14? Broad and wide is the way that leads to destruction, and many are traveling that way. Narrow is the door that leads to life, difficult to road, and few there are who are finding it. Now, Jesus didn't say this because this is how he wants it to be. He didn't say this because this is how it has to be. People who are currently on the broad way heading to destruction can get off it. But normally how they get off it is by somebody helping them to get off it, somebody inviting them to get off. It's called evangelization. It's called being a witness, reaching out to somebody you love and helping them to meet the person of Jesus and, and depart from the broad way that's heading to destruction and get onto the narrow way, which is the, the way of Jesus. It's also where prayer and fasting come in. You know, Mary at Fatima said, so many souls are going to hell because so few people are praying and offering sacrifice for them. So when you presume that everybody's going to be saved, not a lot of witnessing God going on, not a lot of prayer and sacrifice going on, not a lot of holiness going on, not a lot of vocations happening. Jesus wasn't happy about the situation. It wasn't like, oh good, they're gonna get theirs, you know. He was weeping. He was sitting on a hill looking over the city of Jerusalem, weeping because so many of his own people were rejecting him. And he knew what was gonna happen. Things never go well for people ultimately when they depart from the ways of the Lord, when they reject the grace of God. So he prophesied, he said, the day is coming when armies will come and encircle the city of Jerusalem and, and they won't leave a stone standing upon a stone because you missed the hour of your visitation. They were missing who Jesus was. They were missing the opportunity to get connected to him. The Roman armies did arrive in 70 AD. The son of the Roman emperor, Titus, led the armies, set siege to the city, and there was a Jewish historian called Josephus who wrote a detailed description of the destruction of Jerusalem. And it's, it's horrific to read. I, I didn't know this until I read it, but more than a million people died in the destruction of Jerusalem. The temple was destroyed. People were dispersed to the four corners of the world. 
And oftentimes in the Gospels, the prophecy about the destruction of Jerusalem is side by side with prophecies about the Lord's return at the end of history. Because judgments in history are foreshadowings of the final judgment. God is patient. He's waiting for as many as possible to come to repentance, but judgment will come. There will be consequences. We've created a culture, we live in a culture where nobody's responsible for anything. We make mistakes, we don't commit sins. Luke chapter 13. Jesus passed through towns and villages, teaching as he went and making his way to Jerusalem. Someone asked him, Lord, will only a few people be saved? Wow, that's an interesting question, isn't it? I wonder what Jesus is going to say. Now, because Jesus doesn't give numbers or percentages, we tend to not pay attention to what he says, thinking it couldn't really be relevant. But what he says is very clear, very relevant, and very shocking. This is what he says. Lord, will only a few people be saved? He answered them, strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will attempt to enter, but will not be able to. After the master of the house has arisen and locked the door, then you'll stand outside knocking and saying, Lord, open the door for us. He will say to you in reply, I do not know where you're from. And you will say, we ate and drank in, the street, in, the, in your streets. We ate and drank in your company and you taught in our streets. Then he will say to you, I do not know where you are from. Depart from me, all you evildoers, and there'll be wailing and grinding of teeth. How could this be compassionate? What's going on here? These are people who are interested in Jesus. These are people who are sympathetic to him. These are people who ate and drank with him in the streets and listened to his teaching. How could Jesus call them evildoers? Many, many times in scripture it says we need to be not just hearers of the word, but doers of the word. They were interested in Jesus, but they didn't believe in him. They didn't enter into relationship with him. They didn't become disciples. They didn't take a hold of him. And so they couldn't really benefit from his teaching. They didn't surrender themselves to what he was saying. So when the door closed, they weren't in the father's house, they were outside. And the door's gonna close on all of us. The door's gonna close on our country. The door's gonna close on our culture. The door's gonna close on our individual lives. Remember the, the, the parable of the five foolish and the five wise virgins? You know, the five wise virgins had oil in their lamps. The five foolish virgins didn't. And they were waiting for the bridegroom to come and they didn't know when the heck he was gonna come. And it was getting late and he came at an unexpected time in the middle of the night. And the door opened and, and the, the wise virgins were able to go in, but the foolish virgins said, give us some of your oil so we can go in. And, and the wise virgins said, no, we can't. We won't have enough for ourselves. So you can't get into heaven on somebody else's oil. You, you can't get into heaven because your father's a good Christian or your friend's a good Christian. You know, you gotta get into heaven with your own oil. And oil is a symbol of the Holy Spirit. You got to get into heaven with your own relationship with the Lord, your own choice, your own decision to be his and to follow him. The door's going to close. So I'd like to end with, um, since I only come to Greenville every 50 years, uh, 
I like to end with a question that people have. What about people who don't have a chance to hear the gospel? Is it possible for them to be saved? Yes, it is. But listen to precisely what the Catholic Church teaches about this important issue. It's in the Constitution of the Church from Vatican II, section 16. It says, those who through no fault of their own do not know the gospel of Christ or his church, but who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart. Just a little sip of water, okay. <clears throat> but those who nevertheless seek God with a sincere heart and moved by grace try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience, these too may achieve eternal salvation. So what is this, what's the church saying here? It says under certain circumstances, it's possible for people who haven't heard the gospel to be saved. What are the circumstances? One, it's not their fault that they haven't heard the gospel. Sometimes people can be at fault for not hearing it. For example, you invite, Scott Hahn, say Scott Hahn comes to Greenville and, and, you're, and, you're, uh, and you're inviting people to come and some people say no and it's possible that some people might say no because they know what they're gonna hear and they don't wanna be <coughs> awakened from their lukewarm Catholicism. They're, they're culpably rejecting a chance to hear the gospel possibly. What's the second condition? That nevertheless, they're sincerely seeking God. So even though they haven't heard the gospel, they're sincerely seeking God. What's the basis for that? Romans chapter one says, God has actually revealed himself to the entire human race. We can know everything, we can know about God. We can know that he exists. We can know his divinity. We can know his power. So God expects the whole human race because he's revealing himself in the creation to desire to know who is this who created the world? Who is this creator? What is his will? What's, what's the purpose of life? To be asking those questions. There's a lot of people that aren't sincerely seeking God, right? There's a lot of people who care less. Matthew tw chapter 24, Jesus says, you know what it's going to be like when I return again? It's going to be just like it was in the days of Noah, where people are going to be business as usual, buying and selling, eating and drinking, marrying and giving and marriage, building and tearing down, until the flood came and destroyed them all. Indifference. A lot of people are just indifferent to God, indifferent to truth. The third condition is trying to try in their actions to do his will as they know it through the dictates of their conscience. What's the basis of this? Romans chapter two says, people will be judged on the basis of the light that they have. Those who have the explicit word of God, the explicit law of God will be judged on that. People who don't will be judged on the basis of the light that God gives to each person's conscience. Now the catechism of the Catholic Church says, nobody should be deemed to be ignorant of the natural law. What does that mean? That means everybody has some instinct about right and wrong. Everybody knows that you really shouldn't kill somebody. Everybody knows that you shouldn't really take something that belongs to somebody else. Everybody knows that you really shouldn't deceive people, tell a lie. There's something in everybody's conscience. Now, a lot of people don't follow their conscience. Kill their conscience, deaden their conscience, deny it. So now, 
almost every major theologian who's written on this topic stops there. They actually don't analyze the three conditions. And what they take from it is, oh yeah, people can be saved without hearing the gospel. And so people jump from possibility to probability to presumption. And that's how we get to the point where broad and wide is the way it leads to heaven, almost everybody's going there. But if you analyze three conditions carefully, they're not gimmies. But the last three sentences are very important, which are, you're gonna be a, one of a small number of people who have ever heard the last three sentences. But very often, deceived by the evil one, human beings have become foolish in their thinking, have exchanged the truth of God for a lie, and worship the creature rather than the creator. Or else living and dying in this world without God, they're exposed to ultimate despair. Therefore, to procure the glory of God and the salvation of all these. So whose salvation is the church concerned about here? The salvation of those who maybe weren't without fault in not hearing the gospel, maybe aren't seeking God, maybe aren't living according to their conscience. So that's who the church is concerned about the salvation here. Therefore, to procure the glory of God and the salvation of all these, the church, mindful of the Lord's command, preach the gospel to every creature, is zealous to carry out its mission of evangelization. So why is this important? Sometimes people say, well, it'd be better off for people never to hear the gospel because then they wouldn't be responsible. They're responsible before they hear the gospel on the basis of what God's already revealing to them. People who haven't heard the gospel in danger, grave danger, because what the church is saying here is that the world, the flesh, and the devil are very real powers and very real forces that affect everybody. You know, us Catholics have, have so many blessings. We, we have so much opportunity to know the truth, to live the truth, to the sacraments, the one another. And sometimes even we kind of purposely turn away from the light and choose the darkness. How much easier is it to live in darkness and to choose darkness when we don't have the help of Christ in the church? So the bottom line is, let's be concerned for our friends and relatives, not just for them getting good jobs and getting cured of their illnesses and finding good marriage partners, but let's be concerned about their salvation. Let's be concerned about them coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Let's be concerned about them turning away from sin. Let's be willing to put a little flesh in the game like Mary asked us to do at Fatima and pray and fast for the salvation of souls. So I'm gonna stop there. Uh, I could go on longer, but anything more than an hour is really terrible. Mm -hmm. so, so.